Hi everybody, I'm Cassie. Welcome to Crime and Cassie and All Things Creepy. The real crime today is my voice. I am sick yet again. I never get sick and this is my second time being very, very sick in two months. So sorry about my voice guys. Sorry about my puffy face. I'm gonna cry off my makeup because my eyes won't stop watering, but here we go. I gotta get you guys this episode. I've pushed it as long as I could, um, so let's get to it. If you're watching the YouTube version, obviously there's a change of scenery today. Um, I'm in my living room. I feel like the sound is a little bit better out here. It's not as echoey. Plus my dogs are more calm if I'm out here. Um, usually when I'm recording, I have to keep stopping because I can hear their nails hitting the hardwood. Um, so it drives me crazy. So today, I'm um, sorry if you can hear them, they're both snoring, both of them. It's not as loud as them tapping and I still feel like the sound quality is gonna be a little bit better. So um, she just made a whole lot of noise. So bear with her, she's 15. If you're new here, then welcome. Uh, a couple times a month, I like to talk to you guys about a true crime case that for whatever reason, I can't get out of my head. Um, and if you are returning, then welcome back. Love ya, appreciate ya. Spooky episodes are coming, I don't know, sometime after Christmas, um, maybe like February or so, um, but they're gonna be worth the wait. So bear with me um, and enjoy the true crime until then. If that sounds like your jam, I highly suggest you like and subscribe wherever you are watching or listening. I'm obviously on YouTube and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, you know, like, share, comment, reviews are awesome. The last episode, I started doing something that I want to incorporate into every episode, which is just a brief overview of a missing person or an unsolved case. So if you guys can just wait it out till the end and just take a look. And if you have any tips, you know, I'll give you all the info you need to make sure that those tips end up in the right hands. Today's case is a rough one. And if you're like me, you'll go back and forth on who the real victim is and maybe at the end we'll disagree i don't know but i still love ya i don't usually do trigger warnings because if you're watching this it's gonna be the worst of the worst but i feel like i should issue one today because it's a lot uh this story contains accusations of rape murder and incest so if that's too much for you don't take offense i will see you next episode I'm going to take you to the morning of February 6th, 1986, in the town of Selden, New York, which is in Long Island. 42-year-old James Pearson is getting ready for the day. He happens to be an electrician, and he works for the union, but he also has a side business of his own where he basically installs cable boxes. James had lived in Selden since he was a teenager. He actually graduated from Newfield High School in 1962. It's been a rough year for James and his family. His wife, Kathleen, had passed away less than a year earlier, and his son, James Jr., or as they called him, Jimmy, had recently moved out. So now at home, it's just James and his two daughters, 16-year-old Cheryl and 8-year-old Joanne. His daughter, Cheryl, had been late for school the previous day, so he's, you know, getting ready for work like any other day. He pops his head in just to make sure he, she's awake, and... Then he is making his way to his driveway to leave for work. So he goes outside, he's making his way to his vehicle, he's in his driveway when suddenly he is shot five times in the back. Somehow nobody hears this and Cheryl ends up finding her father face down in a pool of his own blood in their driveway. 
she runs to him and she's screaming, daddy, daddy, but he doesn't wake up and she's panicking. So she runs to the neighbors. Police are called and they arrive at the scene and they can see that there's blood everywhere. They can see that James has multiple bullet holes in his jacket and when one of the officers rolls him over, they notice a bullet wound in his head. They also find small caliber bullet casings scattered everywhere. They're obviously trying life-saving measures, but it's too late. James is dead. Just a decade earlier, James had everything. He was married to his loving and doting wife. He had met her three years after he graduated high school, so they had been together a long time. James and Kathleen are raising two children, Cheryl and Jimmy, who are about three years apart. By all accounts, they were a super normal couple. They would go bowling together every Thursday night. You know, James coached Jimmy's little league games. The kids would, you know, ride their bikes around the neighborhood. Kathleen is the softer parent. She, like a lot of moms, would put everyone before herself. James was more on the stricter side. He keeps his kids on a tight schedule. Their family becomes complete in 1976 when baby girl Joanne is born. Jimmy and especially Cheryl are a little bit jealous of Joanne when she's born. Cheryl kind of feels like Joanne's taking her mom from her, but eventually she comes around and Joanne becomes Cheryl's world. They're eight years apart, but it's like having a little built-in best friend for Cheryl. Unfortunately, the happy times don't last for long. On Joanne's second birthday in 1978, Kathleen has to be rushed to the hospital. Kathleen ends up getting diagnosed with a rare and terminal kidney disease. And after being admitted that day, she doesn't leave the hospital for nine months. It's a slow and brutal disease. She was constantly in and out of the hospital after that. She would have to go every other week for dialysis. She ends up undergoing two kidney transplants. By all accounts, James takes great care of Kathleen. And while he's tending to her, Cheryl's at home and she's kind of taken over some of her mom's responsibilities. She ends up, you know, really taking care of Joanne and becomes like a mother figure to her. This becomes the status quo for the next few years. And soon enough, Cheryl is a teenager. At just 16, she has all these responsibilities at home, so much so that she feels guilty anytime she leaves Joanne. So she tends to neglect her social life but she loves school. That is her escape from all the stress at home. And she actually goes to the same high school that her dad went to. She has plans to go to beauty school after she graduates, but while she's there, she's focused on school, but not only school, cheerleading. But even with all that on her plate, she still can't help but notice something. And what is it? It's a boy. That boy is a classmate of Cheryl's and a senior at Newfield High School. And his name is Rob Cuccio. The two of them actually met at a square dancing event at their high school. How adorable. Rob's your traditional 80s Italian Long Island guy. Like Cheryl, he comes from a very strict family. His dad was a New York state detective. Rob's got a sweet mustache. He's got mustache for days. Well, maybe not for days, but I don't know. We'll call it porn star chic. Anyway, sadly on February 13th, 1985, Kathleen passes away. The Pearsons are obviously very devastated, but they're happy to know that she's not suffering any longer. Cheryl unfortunately finds out about her mom's passing in the middle of a school day. So as she is collecting her things to leave, she's stopping at her locker. 
Rob rushes out there to console her and he's overall just really there for her. Cheryl's 16th birthday comes just three months after Kathleen's death and prior to Kathleen passing, she and James had planned on having this massive sweet 16 bash for Cheryl. So James is like, you know what, we're going to proceed, we're going to have this party for you. And the two of them even share a dance to the song 16 Candles. And it's a really heartwarming moment and everybody claps and it's super, super sweet. Rob is also in attendance. And when the DJ later plays 16 Candles again, she shares a dance with Rob. And I'm sure it was very cute. And they had all the butterflies. Soon after, Rob and Cheryl make it official. The family is seemingly doing their best to move on with their lives, but by February of 1986, James is lying dead in his driveway. An investigation ensues and police determine that James had been shot with a 22 caliber rifle five times in the back and once in the head. They're searching the home and they're like, this is a really nice house. He has motorcycles, he has antique cars. The estate was actually worth more than $1 million. And just as a reference today, that would be $2.7 million. So they're like, how does an electrician afford all of this? Yeah, they make great money, but this is crazy. Did he have some kind of extra income that we don't know about on the side? They're also seeing tons of guns everywhere. They start interviewing those closest to James, and they find out that he has a lot of enemies. And the few friends that he does have, they love him, but they also fear him. James had an explosive temper. He basically wanted everything his way. They find out he owned property upstate, and if the tenants didn't pay on time, he would threaten to shoot up their car. He had a little black book with people's names and dollar amounts next to them. So police are starting to wonder, is he involved in organized crime? Like, what's going on here? They find all these recordings and found out that James would record all of his phone conversations and they know about his side business, but they're like, okay, what's the, what's the side side business? How is he earning this massive income? They find out that James would steal electrical materials from his union job and then use them for his side businesses. They take Cheryl and Joanne aside separately to interview them, you know, asking them, who do you think would want your father dead? And something weird happens in Cheryl's interview. Cheryl asks the detective, what cologne are you wearing? The detective is like, can we talk about your murdered father? Or Cheryl later claims that when she asked him that, it was because she had bought the same thing for Rob and it was just an uncomfortable situation and she meant nothing by it, but who knows. But she tells detectives that she knew that her dad was involved in some sketchy business, but she has no idea who would want him dead. Police are basically left scratching their heads. I mean, this could be anybody. This guy had a lot of enemies. I think this daughter was super weird. But then Rob Cuccio's dad calls and says, you might want to take a look at good old Jimmy, a.k.a. James Jr., Jimmy had been cut out of the will and moved out just one month earlier after he and his dad had a huge fight. James apparently always criticized Jimmy and, you know, Jimmy was never good enough. Jimmy denies involvement and he's like, it's pretty funny that Rob's dad would point the finger at me because I think I know exactly who killed my dad. Rob and my sister Cheryl. Jimmy claims that Rob asked him to find somebody to kill James two months prior. 
Jimmy claims that he didn't take them seriously because James wouldn't let Cheryl go out for New Year's Eve and he finally relented and was like, okay, you can go out. Jimmy was like, okay, that blew over. He let her go out. I have nothing to worry about. But now James is dead, so that would be an awfully big coincidence. Police then pull Rob over as he's leaving Cheryl's and they take him back to the station to interview him. They sit Rob down and they tell him, we know you killed James. And he's like, no, I didn't. And they're like, okay, if not you, who? He's like, well, I didn't do it because I paid the guy that did it. Police then take Rob to pick Cheryl up and Rob walks in with these detectives and Cheryl is at home with her grandma, which is James's mom. And she sees him, you know, Rob walking in with these detectives and she's like, what's going on? And he's like, Cheryl, I told them everything. The detectives look at her grandmother and say, your granddaughter is responsible for the murder of your son. Her grandma starts screaming and crying, no, no, no. And at that point, Cheryl is like, oh my gosh, I've been betrayed by Rob. They take Rob and Cheryl back to the police station. And finally, Cheryl admits, okay, I asked this kid to kill my father. She said she'd pay him a thousand bucks to do so, but she has a reason. Cheryl claims she was molested by her father. Cheryl says that she was 12 years old the first time that her dad sexually abused her and they were on the way to the hospital to visit her mom, Kathleen. She says that soon enough it was happening two to three times a day and she does not think that her mom had any idea. She says that she felt dirty and shameful and that's why she didn't tell anybody and her dad would say things like nobody would believe you anyway and he was giving her all this attention that he never had before. Cheryl claims that her whole life her dad had verbally and physically abused her. James was reportedly so unhappy about Cheryl dating Rob that he would follow them on dates. Rob says that James would act more like a jealous boyfriend than an overprotective dad. One night, Cheryl has Rob over for dinner and they're having dessert, it's ice cream, and Cheryl serves Rob his ice cream before she serves it to James, and James allegedly slapped her across the face right at dinner, right in front of Rob. When Cheryl and Rob first started dating, she would cringe when Rob would touch her, and eventually Rob's like, I know what's going on here. She initially denies it, but eventually admits it and says, I tried to stop, but he's threatening to hurt my little sister Joanne. She ends up reading this article about this woman who had somebody kill her abusive husband, and she's like, there's an idea. The next day, Cheryl's in homeroom, and she's telling people about this article that she read, and she's like, who would be crazy enough to kill somebody for money? And a young man by the name of Sean Pika raises his hand and says, I'd do it if the money was right. For the people close to Sean, it's hard to imagine why he would ever say anything like that. He was a pretty normal guy. He was an aspiring Eagle Scout. He had a girlfriend. He came from divorced parents, but I have divorced parents and I'm not going to be like, hmm, if the money were right, yeah. He and Cheryl weren't friends at all. He wasn't friends with Rob. They really didn't know each other other than just being classmates. Nevertheless, one week later, Cheryl approaches him to kill her father. Rob doubts that he'll actually do it. He thinks that he was just talking a big game. Sean's kind of wishy-washy with it. It's kind of like, yeah, I'll do it. Nah, I don't know about it. According to some sources, Sean will say that it was when he learned about her being molested that he decided to do it. But let's be real, he just wanted that money. 
On February 5th, Cheryl is cheerleading at a basketball game and Sean just jogs past her and says, I'm gonna do it. Cheryl's kind of like, okay, sure you are. But the next morning, Sean takes his rifle, he drives over to the Pearsons and he shoots James dead in his driveway. A couple days later, it is time to pay the piper. Sean wants his money. Cheryl and Rob are like, okay, well, All we can get together right now is $400. We'll give you the rest when we can. After Cheryl's confession, all three are arrested. And on February 13th, the three of them are in court on arraignment for second degree murder. Cheryl says, I can prove that I was raped because guess what? I'm pregnant. Cheryl is possibly facing 15 years to life in prison and the community is divided. Cheryl feels like now everybody knows my dirty little secret. James' family doesn't believe her at all. They, along with the prosecution, think that she killed James for her inheritance. She was getting a lot more now. Remember, Jimmy had just been disinherited the month prior, so she would, along with Joanne, would get it all. Cheryl says she had no choice. She wanted to end the abuse that he was doing to her and prevent it from happening to her sister. She says she felt relieved after he was killed. Friends of the Pearsons were suspicious that he had been abusing her sexually and they thought he was definitely abusing her physically because she was seen with bruises a lot. One of Cheryl's classmates had actually witnessed an incident around Valentine's Day the year prior where Cheryl was getting out of her dad's vehicle and a Valentine's Day card had fallen out of one of her books And when her dad saw this, he pulled her back into the car and started punching her until she passed out. The classmate ends up going to the school counselor. And when the school counselor pulls Cheryl in to talk to her about it, Cheryl denies it and says, you know, nothing happened. She thought that nobody could help her. So now Cheryl's sitting in jail. She's pregnant. Rob had gotten bailed out immediately. It takes Jimmy about two weeks to be able to bail Cheryl out. Sean Pika's family is unable to make bail and the community is divided over him as well. Some people think he's this horrible hitman. Others think he's a hero for saving Cheryl from her father's abuse. Cheryl ends up being rushed to the hospital bleeding and has a miscarriage. They test the DNA and it turns out it's Rob's. This obviously weakens her claim of sexual abuse, so on the advice of her attorney, she pleads down to manslaughter. Cheryl admits she needed to plead guilty because she did something wrong. She shouldn't have had her father murdered. She should have told somebody. She should have went to the authorities, something else other than killing him. Rob's charges end up getting dropped to solicitation, so he ends up getting five years of probation. Rob claims he did his best to answer all of the DA's questions about the murder without throwing Cheryl under the bus. Sean ends up pleading down to manslaughter, and he's sentenced to 24 years in prison. Sean claims he did it because he thought he was just helping out a friend. When it finally becomes time for Cheryl to be sentenced, the judge sentences her to six months in Suffolk County Jail and five years of probation. Cheryl actually faints when she hears the verdict, but what did you think was going to happen? Come on. Prosecutors had asked for a two to six year prison sentence, so be thankful. Some think that sentence was harsh. Others think that she got away with murder. But for Cheryl, when those jail doors closed, she said she felt safe for the first time in a long time. After three months, Cheryl is released on good behavior and Rob is waiting for her as she's released. 
And he says, seeing her face walk out of that jail is still one of the best feelings of his life. Cheryl says that while she didn't think it was fair to do any jail time at that time, that now she knows that was probably the right decision by the judge. Cheryl and Rob get married in 1987 and end up having two daughters together. Cheryl says that that day that Rob came to her locker to comfort her when her mom passed, she felt in her heart that her mom had sent him to protect her because her mom couldn't do it anymore. In December of 2002, Sean Pika is released from prison after serving 16 years. While in prison, he ended up going through their college prison program, and after he was released, he ended up joining the board of directors. I mean, if they're going to get released, it's nice to see that somebody made something of themselves and prison did what it's supposed to do, rehabilitate you. So, I mean, that's good to hear. While Cheryl does regret involving Rob and Sean in all of this, she says she is glad that her dad's dead. Cheryl and Rob, along with a ghostwriter, eventually write a book about everything that transpired titled Incest, Murder, and a Miracle. It ends up being made into a movie called A Deadly Silence. James's family completely maintain his innocence. They firmly believe that Cheryl concocted this whole thing just to cover her tracks and get that inheritance. At one point, Cheryl's Aunt Marilyn, who is James's sister, confronts Cheryl and says, if he was doing all these horrible things, why didn't you kill him yourself? And Cheryl's reply was, how could I do that, Aunt Marilyn? I loved him. And that, folks, was this week's very cringy episode. I don't know. Either way, it sucks. She either killed her father in cold blood, or he really did all of these horrible things to his own daughter. I don't even know what's worse. To me, the latter. Witnesses saw the physical abuse, so at the very least, he wasn't a very good guy. If you watch interviews with Cheryl and Rob, I just find them believable. I don't know why, but I do. I believe her. Either way, the whole situation sucks, but it seems like Cheryl, Rob, and Sean all went on with their lives in a positive way. So there's a silver lining, I suppose. I don't know. Now just stick with me just for a few more minutes. This is this week's missing person. Alexandria Lowitzer, or as her friends and family called her, Allie, was last seen on April 26, 2010. She had just turned 16 years old and had recently gotten a job at the Burger Barn in Spring, Texas. That day, Allie had just told her best friend that she would see her tomorrow and then called her mom to ask if she could stop by work and pick up her paycheck and possibly work a few extra hours that night. Her mom says yes. When Joanne gets home around 5.30 and Allie's not home, she's not panicked, but it is weird because Allie usually stays in constant contact with her mom, communicating with her, and she hasn't heard from her. By about 8 o'clock that evening, Joanne still hadn't heard from Allie, and the burger barn closes at 9 o'clock and usually took about a half an hour to close down, so Joanne's like, okay, I'm going to drive out there and see what's going on. When she gets there, they say that they hadn't seen Allie that day. Surveillance footage from the school bus shows Allie got off the bus around 3 p.m. The last eyewitness accounts of Allie state that she was walking away from her home, basically exiting her neighborhood. The last communication recorded was a text message she sent to a friend at 2.57. When Allie was last seen, she was 5'2", about 145 pounds. She had brown hair but had recently dyed it dark red. She had an ear and nose piercings and also had braces. She goes by the nicknames Allie, Alex, or AJ. 
Anyone with any information regarding Allie's whereabouts are asked to contact the Harris County Sheriff's Office at 1-713-221-6000 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678. I'm also going to link a website where you can contact Joanne directly. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and thank you for bearing with me and all my yuckiness. This was Crime and Cassie and all things creepy. Don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, to like, subscribe, review, share. You can follow me on social media everywhere at CrimeXCassie. As always, lock your doors, wear your SPF, and if someone talks about hiring a hitman, do not raise your hand and say, I'd do it. Keep your hands to yourself. Just sit on your hands, okay? If you can't control it, just sit on your hands. Don't do it. It's never worth it. Never a good idea. Bye. Ah!